In this edition of the Futures of Work podcast, we take a look at Premium Cola, an internet collective that grew out of the hacking culture in Hamburg and which organises the manufacturing and distribution of a highly caffeinated sugary drink. They have no office, no fixed salaries and no formal boss, just the moderator of the forum. It was the moderator, Uwe Lubermann, who joined me in the studio. I first asked Uwe just to tell us a little bit more about what is Premium Cola. Yeah, that's a difficult question for us even to answer because we still don't know exactly after 17 years of running the company. Uh, we see Premium Cola rather as a network than a company. So there, is, there are certain circles of people we would uh, see as part of it. There's a core group called the organizational team, which consists of 11 people, which make basically a living from it. Then there's 20 people around these, which are freelance um, it's like salespeople, but we call them spokespeople, so there's no focus on real sales. Then we have a group of 235 people taking the company's decisions, half of which consists of commercial partners, so formally speaking, external partners, and half of which consists of consumers, which also take part in the company's decision-making. Then we have uh, 1,700 commercial partners, which we collected, all kinds of suppliers, all kinds of customers, club and bar owners, and so on. And we feel like we have several tens of thousands of consumers who also could be part of the group of 235 taking the company's decisions. So we feel that the whole premium cola network is kind of consisting of everybody which is affected by us. And by being affected, you should have the right to co-decide and to give a sh have a share in the resources. Hmm. Um, just to bring it back even more basic than that, kind of. So what is what is what is the what is the product? The tangible product would be a cola and a beer and some lemonades. Mm -hmm. But the actual product, that's at least how I see it, is we do care for everybody involved. And if we do well, then they will stay and will cooperate and will do their jobs. And then the tangible products will be the result of the actual job, which mm -hmm. is caring for people. Then the question is, what's the history of this? And, wh and why, why do it in this particular way? And, and how do you do it? And I, I know that's d sort of several questions laid on top of each other. So maybe like start with, well, okay, what's the history of it? What's your history with the company? All right. I was a consumer of a German cola brand named Afri Cola and noticed one day, 19 years ago, that they had changed the recipe without informing me as a consumer. And I figured they couldn't do that because I buy these bottles, so I'm kind of funding the company, which they own, formally speaking, but technically, without our funding as consumers, they wouldn't even exist. So I demanded that they come up with a method of informing and also co-deciding with the consumers, which they didn't agree to because they figured their company was theirs, so they should be taking the decisions. And I figured, no, there must be something better. So I started my own cola brand, which was surprisingly easy. I brought 1,000 euros, had produced 1,000 bottles by somebody who had a bottling plant, and then started inviting everybody involved, everybody affected, to take the decisions together. And this is basically the main secret. And from then we moved forward and developed a whole set of different rules and, of course, different ways of running a company than there would be if I would be the boss taking the decisions. Okay, so it's driven by a kind of a, a desire to have... Well, maybe more of a, a, a annoyance of not being involved within a company that you were, that you liked and you like consuming their products and um, a response to that. I would put it that this was rather the incident, but the actual reason why we do this this way is that the core value I'm having about basically humans is that every human is just one human being and is born free and with the same right to uh, with the same rights and with the same human dignity which is unfortunately not the case throughout the whole world, namely. 
in all kinds of perspectives, but also in the business world. If you own stuff, then you are allowed to decide. Mm. If you own a company, then you are allowed to take the profits. And if you are internal, then you might have some say in the company's decision making. But if you're external, you are not. So this is something I want to fix. So it's basically about the equal human dignity of all humans, which I try to establish in the business world. Okay, so how? Um, so you said you initially started with just sort of thousand euro and went and got basically produced a thousand bottles. What happened? What happened from then? What was kind of the next step from that? Well, I invited everybody, which uh, was affected by these first few bottles. So the first club and bar owner, the first trucking company, the first wholesaler, and so on. And from there, from then, we moved forward and invited more and more people and grew the company step by step, city by city. Instead of having a business proposal and an investor and fueling things faster, because I feel that this pressure of having to pay back an investment monthly uh, on a monthly basis can be very harmful, if not poisonous, for a company if there's too much pressure on everybody. Mm. So we kind of tone it down and build it up as quick as we could and not quicker. And therefore, we came up with all kinds of different solutions and, as I feel, better solutions in terms of the core value uh, we are putting to life. Okay, so apart from, um, obviously, the values there are very different and the co-sort of decision-making, co-production and knowledge and stuff like that is very different. But what, what, what other differences are there with, with Premium Cola compared to, well, compared to whoever you want to compare yourself to? It might be easier to frame which things are uh, not different to so-called normal companies. Okay, yeah, 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 so, yeah. But I'm trying to give a few. For example, um, we figured that um, in the drinks industry and in most industries, there's the issue of volume discounts. So the big customers will get a bigger price because they buy big and it's more efficient and so they should get a discount. Mm -hmm. And we figured that there is already a hidden volume discount by the logistics, which get more efficient if you would move bigger trucks. Mm -hmm. So it's more efficient per unit. And if you would add another volume discount then for the big wholesalers, then they would earn twice just because they are big, which is against my core value. Mm -hmm. So we cannot do it. And so we have no volume discounts. But we figured the small dealers who have higher transportation costs per unit that they actually need a discount, so they will buy cheaper. So we invented the anti-volume discount which is pretty logical still, I guess, mm. and has lots of advantages following up. But still, nobody else does it. So this is something we kind of invented. And this is basically the kind of business logic behind it. We try to address things in a way that we think a lot about how should things actually be if we can shape them as we need to, mm. which we can, so we do. Right, okay. So that's kind of the core kind of tenant of it, really, then. Yeah, the core value and how should things actually be if we could shape them, which we mostly can, so we do. So you've got the anti-volume anti -volume discount. What about in terms of like how the work is structured? So you kind of said that the, there's um, 11 kind of people who, who make a living off, off the company and then you've got this kind of periphery sort of workforce around that. How, how is that, you know, how, does that, how is that kind of structured? We try to avoid to differentiate between internal or external because also the bottling plant owners, which make like 10% of their living with us, is also an essential part for them. Or the trucking company who might make 5% off of us is also an essential part of their income. So um, on the other way around, it's a, I think it's a good idea to have several sources of income. And if you have only one, you will be dependent on this. So it might be a good idea to have several uh, sources. And we... Um, we have a kind of loose working structure. We don't even have an office, so everybody lives where they want to and also works where they want to, and also how much and when and how and with which tools they want to. And we did have, in fact, some years ago, job descriptions for the actual roles, 
and we kind of abolished to to write them because they just changed too often <laughs> because the world changes and the industry changes and we change and the people change so there's change all the time so it doesn't make sense to have structured written down uh, working roles and we don't even have contracts for the workers because we feel that a contract at least to German law has several cons consequences which we don't want to have for example um, if we have a work contract then the worker is entitled to follow orders and the employer is even forced to give orders mm. and I don't want to give orders to anybody else because again my core value I'm not a more special more equal dignity human than any other human so there should be no method of me giving orders to anybody so have you found any challenges in this particular way of working then? looking back I'm surprised that things are and were rather complicated to organize mm. and rather um, complicated to find and um, kind of qualify and even heal people who come from the so-called normal business world. They bring all kinds of damages when, to come, when they come to us. But on the other hand, I found the whole thing to be very easy. So there were very few big uh, fights or problems. We uh, have no written contracts with any of our commercial partners in 17 years with 1,700 commercial partners yeah. and still we didn't have a single lawsuit during the whole time. So it is more complicated if you want to invite everybody but in the end it's, I figure, much easier. Hmm. Okay, so who, 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 are your, who are your main sort of um, customers here? We never analyzed because we don't have any budget for marketing. Yeah. The consumers uh, wiped this one out because <laughs> they didn't want to pay for us getting on their nerves with advertising. Yeah. which typically is the case. Advertising typically is unwanted communication, so we shouldn't be doing it. And uh, we've, we know that we have quite some customers who know what we are up to and how we are thinking and how we are working, and they like uh, us for that reasons. But we also do have customers who just like the caffeine or who just like the taste or who just find the bottle pretty in the club and don't even bother to look up where this bottle is coming from. So it's a diverse range of customers. And also it's a diverse range of commercial partners. So we do have the occasional profit-driven company in there as well. We do have the occasional hippie cafe as well. So this is uh, great because the hippies will be the um, most loyal customers. But the conventional companies, is, these are the ones which we actually want to change. So we need to be in contact with them and work mm -hmm. with them to convince them it's actually easier this way. So it's just within, it's just within Germany, right? As in it's it's just... That's a slight mistake Martin Parker put in his book. Ah. Uh, we deliver to Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Okay, yeah. So it's the three German-speaking countries for ecological reasons. We yeah. don't deliver farther. And further? Farther? Further. Uh, further? Yeah. Further, farther. <laughs> All right. I didn't even know myself. <laughs> <laughs> and also, we tend to discuss a lot, so we need to have talk the same language. Right, yeah. And uh, if somebody inquires from abroad, which regularly people do from all kinds of countries of Europe, but also from uh, Taiwan, China, India, uh, the Arabian Emirates, and also from the UK, then we politely explain that we couldn't be delivering due to the ecological limitations of our planet. Mm. We do only have one planet, and we are already over-exploiting it, so we need to tone this down, unless we don't want to survive as humanity. This is the other option. <laughs> and also... Um, We, couldn't, we cannot deliver, but we will be happily sharing the recipe and all our experiences so you can found your own company and adapt it to the local circumstances. Oh, right. So, yeah, because that's one of the things I, I read where you're saying that, um, that consider yourself sort of an open source company. So it's kind of, 
the recipe and any kind of um, what would be intellectual property or whatever is there isn't any. That's not exactly true, but there are th some secrets which we have. We we don't even know them ourselves. For example, the recipe is based on the original recipe of my favorite cola back then, so right. we don't know that one. But nearly everything else we know is being shared in an open source fashion for several reasons. Um, we do believe that we shouldn't share, for example, the very private information of our um, collective members. If somebody has a drug problem, for example, we can't write this to everybody. That's, of course, the, the limits of uh, transparency. Mm. But everything else we should be sharing for at least two reasons. Uh, first reason is we need to communicate in some way with uh, how we are working, uh, what we're doing and so on to have uh, some kind of connection to the, to the consumers and to the partners. So we need to open up and to communicate. The good thing with this is that we don't have to have a marketing department which kind of kind of tries to kind of build up a fake brand personality and then put this out to the market and somebody finds out and we have a big problem. So we can just be ourselves kind of with all the mistakes and all the downsides. And the second thing is uh, I want a change in the world as you might have noticed from my core value. Mm. So uh, I need to fuel that change and um, open up and also travel here, although we don't sell here, but I still want to travel and bring the ideas. Uh, forward so we need to kind of uh, share what we have learned and the good thing about sharing is uh, if I have for example five apples and I share these apples then I will have be having less apples right but if I have some knowledge and experience and I share these I don't have less of it mm. but then the other ones will try to share with me so I will be having more so I think it's a good idea to actually share knowledge and experience we were allowed together. So have you have you found other have people tried to replicate what you've done in in other places or? There are some German drinks companies who uh, try to replicate some of it, and we also have been allowed to consult on uh, more than forty other companies as well. But I wouldn't be as naive. That's at least how I see it. To try to move our system onto another company, but instead we should try to think from their perspective. So where are they coming from? What's the history, the people involved, the industry they're in? And then find out together which possible next step might be possible there and which change we can fuel there. Mm. So that's a different approach. While I'm traveling here, I'm just presenting and uh, hopefully give an inspiring talk later on. And then the participants would need to figure out what to do with this actually. Mm. And when we try to want to change other companies, then we go there and uh, try to think from their perspective. But as we have a pretty much open-minded approach to all kinds of topics, as we invite everybody involved, mm. we tend to find solutions which nobody else uh, could find before. Mm. Have you found? Have you had some sort of successes in, in changing the, the values of some of these more sort of profit-driven um, businesses and partners that you, you were saying that are within? That's a hard question to answer. I would. Put it like this the companies which invite us typically have in parts of their uh, managers similar values but they feel they couldn't execute them due to the forces of the market the pressure of competition and all kinds of reasons mm. and we kind of sometimes make it to turn this around by convincing them that they will actually have a competitive advantage if they have happy workers and happy suppliers and happy happy customers mm. So this is basically more like a reframing, uh, which we try to do. And uh, to put this to effect, typically there are three things needed. First thing is we need to fuel the exchange between the people which are affected by the company. 
because most companies tend to think in an internal and external fashion and the external partners just don't really matter. So we need to fuel this exchange. Second thing is the bigger the company is, the more time consuming it is to fuel change, which is sometimes pretty unnerving, but it's a fact we cannot, uh, we cannot deny. And third thing is, which is, a, I think in my experience, a very great um, uh, lever, lever to, to work, we ask these companies to keep their top-down management structure pyramid scheme, but to give the goal to almost never use it. Hmm. And if they follow this, then some virtual space opens up for everybody to find their own uh, solutions and to find better co-working practices and so on. But if something goes wrong, they still can turn back to the pyramid scheme they will be still having. So. The level of fear, which is typical in most companies who want to try some change, is greatly reduced. And then you can try out new things which out, without the danger of uh, running into bigger problems because you still have the pyramid scheme to turn back to. Mm -hmm. So you've got still some, some sort of safety net that, that, that kind of can protect the company or if something, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Um, so you talk, talked about kind of some of the ecological uh, reasons for doing particular practices within the org uh, organization. But um, what about in terms of like um, social issues? So, for example, if, if other people think of other big sugary drink manufacturers and stuff like that from someone who's come from like a labor rights perspective, I'd be interested in, OK, where, where does the sugar come from? Mm -hmm. So do you expand? Do you have that, that kind of knowledge of the, the, that down end part of the supply chain? Mm -hmm. We followed every ingredient as far as we could. For example, with the sugar, it was no problem. There's a, a rather big, but it's a cooperative uh, of producing sugar, uh, 30 kilometers from the bottling plant, so the transportation distance is pretty short, so this uh, seems to be all right. And it seems to be even better than having organic sugar transported from Brazil by ship, for example. So we followed most ingredients to the th source, uh, excluding the syrup. This is from the original recipe of the cola I was liking, so we kind of are stuck there. And also by some forces of the world market, for example, there's the cola nut, which we have like six kilos per year. And with six kilos, you can set up a uh, plant to, to grow cola nuts somewhere. So you will be dependent on wholesalers, and there are several wholesalers around the world which just collect cola nuts from everywhere, so you go, can research up to them, but no further, which is bad, but... That's all we can do. We're a small company, so we do the things we can do. And concerning sugar from the consumer's perspective, of course, cola contains sugar, so that's common knowledge. And we actively uh, uh, express that you should be treating cola like a piece of cake, for example. Mm -hmm. So you have a piece of cake like once a week or maybe twice a week. You know there's sugar in it and fat, and you shouldn't be having too much pieces of cake per week, so that's what we are asking for. Yeah. Also, let me add that we have been researching on replacements for sugar. And we couldn't find a replacement yet which, is, which isn't unhealthier as the sugar itself. Right, okay. So there's all kinds of replacements, like aspartame or something, but mm. they tend to be even unhealthier than the actual sugars, so we stick to that. Right, okay. Is there anything in, just sort of a bit of a side thing, is there anything at the moment in, in, in the UK, for example, we've got the sugar tax, and that's just coming. Is, does Germany have anything sort of similar to that? Is there kind of these regulations being pushed down um, in terms of the regulation of sugar content and stuff like that? It's been discussed from uh, some uh, initiatives, but until now I don't see our government uh, doing this. Um, that's my personal opinion. I do think our government is just a slave to the, the big companies and capitalism, so um, I think this sugar tax won't be coming in Germany, but maybe I'm wrong. Hmm. 
Okay, so talk me through then what's um, what's kind of like a t- what's a typical day. So you don't have you don't have an office or anything. So you're not kind of going up. You know, you're working from home or whatever. And how does it work in terms of the day the day to day working of the organization? My job is kind of uh, divided into three parts. So first part would be actual organizing of production, of logistics, of uh, accounting and so on, which is roughly one third of my working time. And I have a uh, desk at home, so I work from, from there typically. The second part is about moderating all the people involved, which I'm kind of a main moderator. That's my official title uh, to do. But I'm not the only one being able to do this, so there's other members as well. And also I'm not the only member able to do organizing, there's also other members as well. So these are kind of, um, uh, I've invested a lot of, lots of time and energy to make the company as independent from me as possible. Then there's the third area, which is about spreading the idea. Talking to you, for example, traveling here, giving talks and workshops at universities and congresses and there's also other members which can do that and do that regularly but this is roughly my working scheme so I'll be like one third of my uh, working week I will be in some train and sitting on the floor next to the bathroom and uh, having my laptop on my knees and trying to uh, fight all these emails I'm getting (laughs) and there's a fourth hardly visible uh, responsibility I have which kind of is to overlook the whole network and to kind of prime and fuel the corporate culture which is kind of spread through all the partners we have and maybe to foresee the next problem coming up and to have the right answer to it so it would be kind of uh, I don't know companies development or something some function and right now I'm I have the impression that nobody else is able to do that um, as well as I can so I might be wrong on this, but there are several incidents, there were several incidents in the past where I saw a problem and had to find a solution where nobody else even saw that problem. Mm. For example, we had uh, two members uh, with our last yearly meeting uh, three weeks ago who wanted to narrow down the collective on the core group of 11 only, which should strengthen their bond, which is a good idea if you first think of it. But if you think further, then it at the same time means that everybody else should be considered as external. Mm which can have lots of negative consequences. If somebody's considered external, then you might just send them an order when they should be delivering instead of asking them, when do you want to deliver? So this can change the whole relationship, which then can change the whole idea and reputation of the company, which then can change our chance of distributing uh, the ideas, which will narrow down our chances of bringing change to the world. Mm. So we shouldn't be doing this and I'm very very sure about this and uh, nobody else saw this, uh, this as a, a big problem so we had a discussion around and I kept quiet myself at the beginning not to prime it too much and then I had like a three minutes talk which was the most important talk of the whole company's history I guess to express and explain the possible consequences and why I'm very sure that we shouldn't be doing this and everybody else was Nearly everybody else was feeling the same, which I expressed before. So I kind of managed to get the whole group uh, behind this idea again. So this is something I feel is my responsibility, which nobody else can do now. So when you've got these very tr- tricky decisions to make, and, and a lot of like what you're saying about 
that um, you know the major decisions facing the organisation are done in a co-decision kind of making process. So how how does how does that sort of work in practice? And also stuff to do with like more kind of specific like specific aspects like how much people are paid, like at what hours they work, mm-hmm. and, and you know how are these decisions made. Concerning the story I told, I just told this was not a decision I had to make. Mm. Because I could, in our model, we use consensus democracy, I could have just given a veto to to fend this off. But this wouldn't be the wrong, uh, the wouldn't, this wouldn't be the right way to do it, because just to give a veto would have, be, would have meant that there was no understanding about the actual issue. Mm-hmm. So uh, I needed to do it in a softer, more convincing uh, way. And I think this goes for nearly every decision we have to make. We invite everybody involved and and affected to to take part in consensus decision making. So one veto from anybody, even from a consumer, is enough to block any decision. And therefore, we need to come up with suggestions which have already built in the needs and ideas and uh, suggestions from everybody involved. So the quality of decisions is much better than I could possibly do them on my own. I'm just a single person with limited experience and knowledge and intellect and so on. So I think it's pretty wise to invite everybody to it and still have some kind of orientation what the whole company is actually up to. Because if you just invite everybody and you have no kind of, I wouldn't call it even leadership, it's kind of an orientation I'm trying to offer, which is the core value of equal dignity of humans. This is the only thing I won't be discussing. Everything else we can discuss, but this I don't think we can discuss it at all, because if we would, then we can argue that some people in the world should be allowed to accumulate uh, billions of dollars while others are homeless. Then we can discuss about people from Africa being drowning in the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, one white woman from Britain, God bless her, she fell from the ship and all kinds of helicopters and ships were sent to to save her which is great but there are other humans drowning and just because they have the wrong skin color they'll be letting to drown so this makes me sick so we cannot discuss the equal dignity of humans Mm. and i think it's something in between like inviting everybody and handing over the decision-making power with the right to veto to anybody and still have the whole group follow a certain core value, which is a kind of different style of, uh, I wouldn't even call it leadership. So if someone's actually joined part of the organization, do they have to show, they've got to show some, obviously some commitment to these core values then? So do you have like a, is it also, does it work in terms of veto process in terms of what organizations that you also interact with and form relationships with? Not really, uh, because, even the conservative companies or members which try to join us, these are the ones we actually want to change. So we need to, to, them to join us mm-hmm. and then to work with them to, to convince them. So we do have the other perspective. If somebody wants to join us and this person is clearly against our main value. So for example, if they have any right wing uh, flag on their account or if they have been supporting or if they have even uh, expressed that you should these people in the Mediterranean Sea, you should, you should let them drown, then of course there's no foundation for any discussion with those people, so we mm-hmm. cannot discuss with them. And also I think um, if you invite them to, to discussions, then you're kind of making them a viable part of a mm-hmm. discussion, which is a stupid thing to do, so we, we, can't, uh, we cannot discuss with them. But from there on, with all the, the middle conservative uh, uh, um, 
parts of society we we actually want to discuss and work with them because these are the ones going to change yeah yeah back onto also the question around how how um you know how do you decide stuff like to do with pay hours of work how much how much the product costs i know you've got the anti-volume discounts and but how, how are these kind of in the more sort of like in the grand scheme of things about what we've been discussing quite menial kind of things but also mm -hmm. important we do of course decide on this in consensus with all the people involved. So the, for example, the wholesalers, the buying club owners and the dealers and also the consumers will decide upon the costing structure together. And this has been done for 17 years now, so it's possible. And the results, of course, vary. So we have a fixed costing structure per bottle and everybody can see where which share is going. So there's very rare, rarely we have fights or problems with distributing the money. And of course, we do have the same salary for everybody, including me, of course per hour, which is right now 18 euros per hour. And we talked about several possible rises, of course, for responsibility, for boredom of jobs, for being absent from home, for all kinds of things, for experience, for diplomas, and so on. And in the end, we went with the same salary for everybody with three possible rises only. First possible rise is if you have kids, you will get more per kid, because if you have kids, you need more money to feed the kids. If you have a handicap, you will get more for, for the specific handicap. And if you need a desk somewhere, if you do accounting, for example, you will be, uh, you won't be at the bottling plant, you won't be in a truck. You need a desk somewhere, so you will be getting paid for that desk, and that's basically it. Right. So imagine if you worked for a company, which hands you the right to co-decide and even gives you the power to give any veto, and also which shares the resources, and you know that even me, as the official founder and owner, will get the same salary as you. Hmm. Then I think we do have a absolutely different and more solid and um, uh, foundation to actually be working together. Mm. So you won't be trying to steal from us, you will be trying to do your best at work and if things don't work out we can figure out if you do another job. So there's an absolutely different relation and I do think that a good relationship is more powerful than nearly everything else which you could possibly do. You could use controls and checks on the working hours but a good relationship is much more powerful mm. you could use a different payment scheme to fuel people who are lucky to be able to perform better because if you are you have been lucky in life before if you can perform you have been born in a peaceful country probably have uh, had a stable um, parents maybe you have had a, a university you, have a, you were allowed to study you are healthy probably living in a stable relationship and then you can perform so if you pay, if you, if you would pay more for people who are able to perform, then we are paying the lucky ones even more. It doesn't make sense. Uh, now I do think that good relationships are much more powerful than nearly everything else. Even the best contract you could possibly work out. I was at University of Manchester yesterday and had some uh, law teachers uh, arguing with me. Pretty funny. And they, they were like, you should have contracts. You need contracts. There must be contracts. And I was like, no, there shouldn't be contracts. And if you have a good relationship, then you don't need contract at all, and they are much more powerful. So okay, um, so we talked um, a little bit about whether you know other companies have tried to replicate what you've done in in, in other sectors or whatever or, or other countries. But what do you think in terms of the, the lessons that you've learned from Premium Cola? How can you apply it to other companies? And I know you've you I know you have. So can you kind of explain some of these examples that you have? Yeah, for example, I went to a collective in Hamburg. They have built themselves a little ship to uh, run parties on. 
And with the building process, everything was working out pretty nicely. So they uh, were collectively working at the same location, of course, to build the thing. And then after it was ready, they had to move on to a kind of regular uh, event holding uh, company, which was very difficult because they had great problem of aligning to uh, to a common goal. And I kind of I kind of felt that this wasn't even necessary. So, for example, if if we decide after the podcast here to go to the bakery, then you might be going to get a bread, and I might be going to have a walk in uh, in the. Uh, in the fresh air and maybe Martin is joining us and he wants to have a talk with you so the actual goals might be differing but as long as we can agree on the same route to the bakery then it's perfectly all right mm. so this is something which they took home and which actively helped them to uh, basically save the pro the project because they were when i met them they were drowned in uh, problems and fights and they were also nearly bankrupt so things were turning bad and with this little idea that the, the the direction of the goals needs to be the same but not the actual goals uh, this helped them actually to turn things around mm. okay so um so what what's next then what's the next bit what's the next big project for you i was thinking that uh, our ideas should be transported to other industries as well not the actual practices but the ideas behind them and hopefully uh, in industries which are pretty bad right now so for example the real estate industry and uh, therefore, I've uh, trained myself to be an administrator for buildings, uh, friends and uh, colleagues of mine own for the past three years to actually learn how to run things and how to be more efficient and how to have happier tenants, basically. Because if you have happier tenants, then you will be having less problems with them. Mm -hmm. So things will be more efficient. And for example, I managed to turn down the uh, side costs besides the rent. So there's heating and energy and so on and all kinds of stuff. Uh, with a certain building for from 100 euros per month to 50 euros per month just by caring for everything and this is something we want to use as the foundation for a second company which will be founded in a few months probably with some other members and we are trying to bring our premium ideas to the uh, real estate industry and to be better administrators than everybody else hmm. okay so i came across, i came across your company um when I was reading uh, Martin Parker's uh, book on shutting down the business school when he was on on the Futures Work podcast a few months ago. And one of the things he said uh, in the book is about establishing this, this school of organising. And uh, if people haven't listened to that podcast, they should go and have a listen to it. Um, and they said, and he said that Premium Cola would be the kind of a very useful example for students in terms of an alternative way of organising. So if you were put in front of a group of let's say 30 uh, 18 year olds who have signed up to this course on alternative forms of organization let's just call it that what would be if you had a couple of minutes what would be the main messages that you wanted to, to get across to them you know the, you know, the youth of today mm -hmm. the main message I will be trying to get forward this afternoon actually is that a single person can be enough to make a difference because when I was younger, I was thinking that the system of capitalism is so strong and the framework of law is so rigid and everything is so uh, yeah, solid that I can't really make a difference in the world as a single person. And of course, I can't change the EU regulations or the, the problem with refugees and so on. So there's things I can't change in the world. But in the business world, one person can be enough to fuel change. And when I began, I had no money, like this thousand euros with virtually no money. I had no experience. I had no idea how to actually do this whole thing. I just began and worked my way through it. 
And until today, I think we had established a great deal of difference in the industry and also in other industries. We've done more than a thousand uh, events at universities, for example, with several people. So there is a level of difference we, we can make. We working together with 1,700 commercial partners. We have had more than 40 other companies to develop. So there is a huge difference uh, you can make as a single person in the business world. Yeah, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Uva, thank you very much for coming in today and, um, and, and telling me all about the company. Really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.